This is Miguel Melinger and welcome to my brand new podcast, Behind Every Face, where we'll be speaking to some ordinary people with extraordinary life stories to tell. So if anyone wondering, yes, I am just your average teenage podcaster. But one thing's for sure, the people I'll be speaking to are far from average. Basically, the way this whole thing works is that right about now, I'll tell you a story about myself and then you'll all be like, "Uh, is this thing even worth listening to? And then I'll give you a brief life synopsis of the person I'm going to speak to. And then you'll be like, wow, I've got to listen to this. Um, Today, we are going to be speaking to Bridget. And I'm really excited for this one. So in 1990, Bridget travelled to the Republic of Congo, which was colonised by the French and exploited for the wood in the rainforest. Um, Now, this is not to be confused with the Democratic Republic of Congo, which was brutally colonised by the Belgians. And um, she and four others have been employed by a production company to explore an uncharted rainforest in North Liquala and try and film the western lowland gorillas for the first ever time and david attenborough had previously made a film on mountain gorillas in rwanda but bridget and the rest of the crew were to be the first people who weren't locals to see the western lowland gorillas and they were to make two films journey to the dark heart for the bbc natural world series which was about them getting to this uncharted rainforest and second um to obviously film the gorillas for Discovery USA and this one was to be called Gorilla's Gentle Giants um, and when Bridget and the others arrived in Brazzaville the capital of the Congo with loads of equipment the man who was supposed to be directing turned around gave Bridget all of the money and then told her that she was now the director before leaving to go back to England and there she was leading the rest of her team into the dark heart if you like and I'll be speaking to Bridget about the gorillas, the elephants, the pygmy people, and more. So, without further ado, let's get into the interview. First of all, I want to say thank you for being my first ever guest on the podcast. You've had many incredible experiences in your life, which we'll get onto shortly, but what sort of sparked your interest in wildlife, um, and particularly filming and photographing? wildlife so was it something that developed from a young age or was it a passion that you found yourself having like more in your adult life well I was brought up on National Geographic magazines and I used to I used to devour them I, I used to wait till they came and I could read them and look at the photographs and I remember very clearly one one particular magazine there was a picture of um, an indigenous a paddler in a canoe paddling down, I think it was the Amazon River, and I looked at that photograph and I thought, wow, so many places, so little time, I have to get out there to to see it all. And I originate from South Africa. My parents emigrated in the 60s during the height of apartheid. So I I was uprooted at a very young age. And I think once you've been uprooted from everything you know, your only real home is wherever your family happens to be. And that gave me a real passion for journeying rather than just drifting. I I did a lot of um, travelling around Africa, um, probably a third of my life in the UK, a third of my life 
in Africa and a third of my life everywhere else. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And your your sort of journey into like working in this area was, as you said earlier, um, quite a peculiar one because you started off in a zoo and then you ended up working for a company called Silverback Productions, um, which is a small company that no longer technically exists. So. So what led me from the zoo to the yeah, so to the filmmaking? Okay, that that was just um, I would say most of my life is very much about one door opening and leading to the next thing, almost serendipitous, I suppose. I, I am a great believer that what is meant to be will be, and if it's right, it will happen. And you, there's a lovely joke: um, How do you make God laugh? Tell him you've got a plan. So I I was hand rearing five baby gorillas, all overlapping at Howlett Zoo Park in Kent. Um, Obviously, you can't go shopping strapped to a gorilla, so I didn't actually have a day off for about four years. And I was owed a lot of leave, obviously. But um, because the hand-rearing was good publicity for the zoo, John Aspel, who owned the zoo, um, used to welcome any filmmakers or newspaper or TV appearances just to raise money for the zoo. And a team from Silverback Productions spent a week with me filming the hand rearing, um, at which point I was on the verge of the last baby gorilla being reintegrated back into the group. And I had planned to go back to South Africa for a holiday to see family and friends when this company said to me that they would very much like me to accompany them to the French Republic of Congo, where they were, they'd been commissioned by the BBC to film the gorillas I'd been hand-rearing, the Western Lowland gorillas, for the first time ever. Um, and obviously I'd, I'd learned to love them and was very curious to see how they would be in the wild. Mm-hmm. And when you got there, um, of course, you didn't just suddenly see those gorillas uh, when you arrived in the Republic of Congo. So uh, you had like a very complicated journey. It wasn't simple um, at the time that you filmed it. And what were the big challenges that you faced? Well, it's, it's, I mean, it's a very brutal history. Both Congos, the French Congo and the Belgian Congo, were, were, were colonised by Belgium and French. And so there was a lot of suspicion surrounding our arrival there because we were white, but we weren't French. Um, very few people could speak English. Um, I was lucky enough to, to, to have a bit of recall of my French O-level, so I did speak... Um, enough French to apply for permits and and that kind of thing but we arrived in the wake of communism turning over to democracy so basically the Congo had been um, hostile both politically and geographically which is why no one had ever filmed there before and our greatest challenge was to get five of us in the team two Jeffs, two Marks and myself plus a ton of camping and camera equipment from Brazzaville in the south which is the, the, the capital city somehow to the Likwala region in the far north. But having said that, the last um, Russian plane that they'd had, obviously communistic, had crashed. There were, no, there were no flights to anywhere in the Congo. And we then were forced to go back to the drawing board and realised that if we were going to achieve our mission, which was to film for the first time ever these, these Western Lowland gorillas in uh, the Likwala region, then we would have to do what the locals did, which was to board... Um, a, a logging barge that had brought the logging um, trees down to Brazzaville and then 
taking human ballast back up, um, people dropping off at their little riverside villages all the way up the Congo River. Uh, and was it difficult to adapt to life in the jungle at first? Because obviously you had other people there with you, but it must have been quite a shock to the system at first. Yes, I think, well, the first the first challenge was actually, we, we were realistically enough to know that we were not going to um, last one day in that jungle without the guidance of the pygmy people who are the indigenous people. Mm -hmm. Now the pygmies, uh, the word pygmy is actually the Greek word for half an arm's length because they are tiny. Um, the reason they're so small is the jungle is extremely dense and they are able to slip through the jungle very quickly and easily with their small size which is made up for in huge amounts of strength um, and it was of enormous interest to us that there were they are depicted uh, the pygmies are depicted on the pyramids they used to be invited because their music was so unusual and complicated and they had extraordinary rhythms they were invited to dance for the pharaohs when once the whole of africa was covered in forest and then as as deforestation happened the pygmies moved down to the center of Africa um, and they they were our, our film depended upon them trusting us and being prepared to guide us so our first challenge really was that was in um, securing that trust because they, when we first arrived in their little riverside village the women ran screaming into the forest picking up their babies and it later transpired that their evil spirits are depicted with white faces and straight hair which is exactly what we looked like so to all intents and purposes these these evil spirits had walked into their village and looked set to stay pitching their tents and I think as the only woman in the group my role really was to try and show the children and the women that we were not a threat and I did notice that they would be watching us through the rushes when we were washing and they'd never seen the apple biodegraded fluffy soap they used to wash with um thick slabs of palm oil soap and it was the curiosity of the children when they when the mothers realized that this so-called evil, evil spirit was not only not hurting them but actually helping them with a bit of first aid to um, open wounds and sores that they'd had that were infected and it was through that those tenuous um, links with the children and then the women that ultimately the pygmy men came on board and agreed to be our guides and it was that that was a big breakthrough. That took about two weeks, though, of just living near the village, letting them feel free to observe us, watch us. Um, and I think the other breakthrough was we'd taken up a Polaroid camera. These, these, the pygmy people had never seen images of themselves. They just had a big, very fast-flowing, murky, muddy river uh, and pots and pans that they could look at their reflection in. So I took a photograph of every single villager, and when they saw their images and were able to grasp a little bit of what our camera was aiming to do that removed the main fear because our camera was an art and an Ariflex which looked like a big gun to them and many of the men had worked across the river in Cameroon for hunting concessions so those men had actually seen guns had guns and spoke the, the some very rudimentary French which was the way that I was able to communicate with the men and of course it would have been difficult for them to sort of get to grips with your culture at first but are there anything when you arrived there and saw the way that they lived is there anything that was particularly shocking or surprising to you uh yes actually the pygmy people lived in 
um, I suppose, symbiosis with the Bantu um, agriculturalist uh, Congolese. The agriculturists had a fear of the jungle and the pygmies played what they called the idiot game with the Bantus. Now this only emerged after months of living in the jungle with the pygmies. But they would play the game of wearing the t-shirts and the, and the sort of western type clothes and doing what the Bantu people needed them to do because they would be supplied with um, manioc, which is their staple food, pots, pans, bullets. But then in return, the pygmies would go into the jungle and bring the Bantu the bushmeat that they needed and, and craved. So bushmeat is basically any meat that comes from wild from the jungle, whether that's fish or chimpanzee, doesn't meet, meat is meat and, and food is survival and they're not sensitive to that. So it was interesting to us that once we got into the jungle, off went the... The, the shorts and the t-shirts, traditional raffia skirts were, were put on, the traditional music, the traditional dancing and singing took place in the forest. But once they got back to the village, that all stopped and they played, they called it the idiot game. Um, so that was, that was very surprising to us. But I think the other surprising thing was the enormous strength that the women and the children had in carrying a hundred pound bags and were very insulted when we said we'd like to carry them because they couldn't work out why. In their view, that that took away the work from another porter. So in the end, actually, they used to call us, uh, they used to say, oh, les mondelli, which is a white man, they are too complicated. Ils sont trop compliqués because we had all the paraphernalia of army boots and rucksacks and clothing, which were, which just didn't suit slipping easily through the jungle and they'd be waiting for us for maybe an hour to do the same journey that they'd just done. Yeah, and when you finally got to the place where you were going to be filming the gorillas and you saw a gorilla coming out of the bushes for the first time, what was that like? Well, bear in mind that we had travelled for two weeks on the logging barge We'd spent two weeks uh, in the village while the, the pygmies um, learnt to trust us. So that was a month already without taking the camera out of the bag. We then cut our way through the jungle, which was incredibly dense, which took another four weeks until we got... And although we did see a lot of gorillas, um, because of the dense canopy, we couldn't get a light reading on the cameras because, bear in mind, this isn't digital. This is the old Super 16 film. Mm -hmm. And so we had to carry all the film in, in, in cans. And we just, yes, the gorillas would be completely um, unafraid of us because they'd never seen humans, they'd never been hunted before. So we'd wake up in the morning, we'd see them up in the trees looking down on our camp, actually wondered who was watching who, us watching them watching us. But that was never going to make a documentary. And we then, through amazing um, luck, bumped into another because these are nomadic people they have to go to where the game and the and the, the animals are to, to survive and the honey and the yams and all the things that they um, harvest from the jungle but we met another group who said they'd heard speak of um, a huge open place where it was like a big giant watering hole where elephants and gorillas and all the wildlife would come down to drink and feed but that we would have to cross the Indoki River, which was a massive river. And the Indoki actually was the Indoki jungle was uh, translated, 
the word for a sorcerer or enchanted. So a lot of superstition. And we got so far that we decided, with the help of the pygmies, that we would actually carve out our own dugout canoe in order to cross this river into unknown territory again, um, which took another four days of people, including our, our film crew, working four men on, four men off to carve out this pirogue. That eventually took us to this amazing place called Abai, which people believe are actually started with um, elephants uprooting minerals and knocking over trees and then other giant um, antelope and um, gorillas and all sorts of uh, Red River hog would keep churning up the grounds and, and prevent the jungle from reclaiming it and then gradually getting bigger and bigger and always fed by freshwater streams. Um, so that was where our first, we realised that this was the first chance we had of actually um, achieving this documentary and that first sighting of a gorilla, and, and just to say that scientists until this had, had firmly believed that water limited a gorilla's distribution, so they couldn't swim, they avoided water. Pygmies looked very surprised at this and said, but they, they wander, they wade into the water and they eat water plants and they were used to seeing gorillas quite comfortable in water. So of course that was going to be an amazing first for our cameraman to cap capture. So when that first male gorilla, out of pure curiosity, came to see who we were and waded waist deep into the river, about seven foot standing on his back legs, I think it was probably for every one of us the most euphoric moment of two months out there. And in fact, still today um, is definitely one of the highlights of my life and is indelibly in my head and my my. My, my memories but I did also ask one of the cameramen who was one of the pioneering cameramen for David Attenborough's Living Planet and Life on Earth what his highlights were in his life and he's also an underwater cameraman and he said one looking into the eyes of a whale and the second was looking at that silverback gorilla just looking into those eyes and just seeing a whole world there um, that it, that existed so yeah it was amazing uh, very difficult to describe. Yeah, I mean, it's also quite difficult to like imagine unless you see it yourself. But sort of very quickly moving away from the gorillas, you also mentioned um, you saw elephants during your time. And despite many people's beliefs um, that gorillas will probably be quite aggressive and elephants as being quite big creatures will be sort of quite peaceful, but it's usually the other way around, isn't it? Um, I know, I think... Are you talking about the elephant attack when we surprised the mum and calf? Yeah, I was about to move yeah. on to that. Yeah. Okay, I, I, I think I'm safe in saying that pretty much most animals are peaceful unless they're threatened or starving. Um, so if their lives are threatened, if their young are threatened, a gorilla can be extremely ferocious. But if a gorilla does not feel threatened in any way, it's one of the gentlest creatures on the earth. And so are elephants. Elephants will only attack if they feel that they're young or themselves are threatened. They will, okay. the, We are no use to them. They can't eat us. They're vegetarians. Mm -hmm. so there'd be no sense in elephants being aggressive towards us unless, as in most parts of Africa, they've been hunted and they know that it's a life and death situation. What happened in this case was that, um, that literally you could not see more than a couple of inches in front of you. The, the vegetation was so dense. And so we were cutting our way through this jungle with machetes and surprised a female elephant with her young calf. She was terrified 
uh, the pygmies were terrified because they they knew what they they just done was to scare a very protective matriarch elephant and a baby and they just scattered and the elephant took up chase obviously to pre protect her calf and I just felt a little hand of my self-appointed guide Makobo pulling me under a huge caged um, network of buttress roots from one of these um, giant trees and this and it, these are not the African the the, the the big African elephant, these are pygmy elephants. So again, very much adapted with their trunks, um, their tusks facing inwards, much smaller so they could slip through the forest much more easily. And the the, um, mum, the female elephant was attacking us with her tusks through this cage of roots. Um, fortunately, was not able to break through. And when she realized that there was nothing going to happen with this, she then disappeared back through the forest. I mean, when when you talk about that, it, it sounds almost like something out of like a Steven Spielberg movie. Um, I think that's the. Yeah, it felt movie. like something out of yeah. Spielberg. <laughs> I will say though, there is there is a word uh, in Babengeli, which is the tribe that these pygmies are called, um, which means dead. But it's not just dead. It can be dead, quite dead, very very dead, or really dead. And actually, what it means is injured or ill. Or really ill or actually dead and the pygmies have got a very um, complex system of calling each other through the jungle and all of a sudden from no apparently nowhere the pygmies had regrouped and were still running in front of us and I noticed that one of the men was carrying a, a young boy and his leg had obviously been broken and was hanging at a horrific angle and the elephant had actually tried to attack the young boy the dad had got in the way so that the tusks of the elephant had almost scalped the man's um, scalp and his scalp was flapping as he was running with the boy. And I thought, well, crikey, this is, you know, it's horrific. I thought they were both probably going to die of infection. But with the pygmy's incredible knowledge of forest medicine, within a month that young boy was walking, having been splintered up, having had lots of um, potions and things strapped and, and bound around the wound. The old man's scalp had almost had pretty much healed as you would never notice anything had happened. And it really taught us all how much we stand to lose, potentially, of natural medicine that we still know nothing about in these tropical rainforests. Yeah. Going back to the gorillas, um, so you would have spent a long time with them in the jungle and you must have some really special memories obviously but I know that you didn't um, interfere with their lives um, and you filmed from afar to not disturb them but after being with them for so long you must have so formed some sort of like relationship with them or like maybe you gave them names or maybe they each had their own sort of distinguishable personalities and characters so that's a very good question and is very close to my heart because one of the lessons learnt from the mountain gorillas where uh, a lady called Diane Fossey was studying them and did name them and did form relationships with them, um, we were determined that that would not be something that we did. A um, couple of things, we were going, so if they became in any way dependent on us, it wouldn't be fair to them if we fed them or gave them exotic things. Uh, we would suddenly disappear and that dependency would not be there anymore. Um, secondly, 
they are identifiable, but by their nose shapes. Like we have a fingerprint. Elephants have a, an ear print. Every, every, every elephant has a different ear shape and can be identified by their ears. Gorillas have, there are no two gorillas that have the same nose shape. So we got to know our gorillas through nose shapes. I won't say we, we, we developed a relationship with them because the danger of that as well is if they became too comfortable with us, then that was fine because we pulled a camera out. But if they then associated all white people with us, but those next lot coming in were hunters, they'd be sitting ducks for the pot, which is what happened in Zaire where they'd been habituated by coachloads of tourists. And then when there was the Rwandan genocide and hundreds of thousands of Hutu refugees came over the border for safety in Zaire, they killed the gorillas because the gorillas were so habituated, which means used to people, they didn't attempt to run away at all. And we were determined that that was never going to happen for us. And actually, um, we learnt many years after we left the Congo that hunting concessions had been given permits. So we were very grateful that we hadn't um, tamed or made um, any kind of human relationship with them. Yeah, and of course that sort of differs um, from what you were previously doing uh, when you were working in the zoo where you used to tend to the gorillas. So I know that you don't agree with um, captivity of gorillas, um, but do you not find it sort of natural to? feel like a relationship between the gorillas having spent so long tending to yes. gorillas back in. That is the biggest challenge is not to bond too much. In fact, with the with the baby hand rearing um of the baby gorillas, my role really was to nurture and wean at the same time so that those baby gorillas were prepared for life in the orphan group, not with me. Mistakes had been made where they'd formed attachments with their hand rearers and then became very anthropomorphized and, and, and thought they were humans. And the way that I could reduce that risk was first of all, a baby gorilla is weaned in three years from a mother gorilla. My job was to try and concertina that into a year. Mm-hmm. Secondly, I would take those baby gorillas every single day down to the orphan group where they would be adjacent to the cages of family gorillas and I would literally passively sit and just let them know that they were gorillas vocalising. I would never use human commands. I'd try and emulate um, gorilla vocalisations in communicating with them. Um, and then very gradually I would withdraw from the, the cage and leave them for a whole day. And ultimately when I felt they were ready and they were um, bonded with the other gorillas and they were observing natural gorilla behaviour through to the family groups, they would finally be fully integrated overnight. Um, And that was a success. I think there is an enormous value of um, having captive threatened species. Obviously, if they are are involved in very carefully structured and successful reintegration programmes, breeding programmes, which are connected across the countries. However, with with gorillas, you can only have one silverback male. You can have 30 females and babies but one silverback dominant male rules that group therefore in captivity if a silverback male has five or six male gorillas that gene pool is overrepresented. they can't stay in with the male gorilla because there will be fights they can't then breed because 
they're overrepresented, and there have been exchanges in zoos all across the world, so there's nowhere for them to go. So it's a bit like having a great big holding tank of these male gorillas, but with no out with no outlet. And I find that very sad. Yeah, and it has this. I think it's been nearly thirty years uh, since you finished filming the gorillas in the Republic of Congo, and of course you'll probably remember it um, quite vividly still. But do you miss it at all today? Uh, looking back on it, do you miss going into the jungle and seeing those gorillas up close, and um, or is it something that you've so you're quite happy to just remember I'm a great believer I feel I feel I was enormously all of us did we were enormously privileged to be the first people to ever venture into this absolutely pristine inviolate place that hadn't been explored for some 60 million years but with that came an enormous responsibility and when we left for the final time we actually destroyed our dugout canoe so that it would make it more difficult for other people to follow us in, possibly hunters. Um, since we left, huge areas of the pristine places we were have been logged. A lot of the pygmy people have been contacted now and work for logging companies, drinking, smoking, um, and actually very few of the places that we were privileged to see exist as they used to be. So I've no real in fact, I have a very strong wish not to go back to see how places have changed when we were so lucky to see them as they'd always been. Yeah. Um, I missed the friends I'd made amongst the pygmies enormously. Um, that goes without saying. But we were the invaders, really. Um, we tried to, to leave it as we left, as we arrived. I think we, the pygmies felt respected by us and trusted by us and they returned that trust and respect. Um, but I think it was job done. Um, and I think now I'm a mum. It was a very dangerous expedition. There was no guarantee that any of us would necessarily come home. Um, but I am I now have a, a daughter, and I don't think I could have undertaken that sort of level of risk if I had had any dependence at the time. Yeah. Um, well, I think that's pretty much everything. I was going to cover but before we go um as you know I currently go to school and one of the things that I do most of school is tests um not something I particularly enjoy but um I thought just to sort of finish it off this episode I'll give you a little test on gorillas that I've prepared so it's, it's nothing to worry about um <laughs> and I, I've tried I've tried to um choose some questions that you might not necessarily be like completely familiar with it might not be something that you'd need to know some of them you'll know it's only five but, so do um, you know the answers of these yeah i, so, I do okay. know the answers, and I'll, <laughs> I'll explain some of the answers a bit more after i've revealed them but um it's multiple choice so after the question i'll give you three choices and <laughs> we'll see how you do so um uh, this is a very long-term record miguel <laughs> yeah so this one's um, about sort of captive gorillas, and in particular, there was a gorilla that understood two thousand words of English and responded using sign language. Um, so, was the name of that gorilla A. Coco, B. Colo, or C. Snowflake? Coco in America. Yeah, that's that's right. Um, so, yeah, Colo was the 
oldest known gorilla and Snowflake was an albino gorilla. So um, Coco, the gorilla you just mentioned, she um, she adopted kittens, I believe, and befriended Robin Williams. So that's a bit of a uh, fact about her. But the next question, um, so that was correct, number one. Um, the most endangered species of gorilla is the mountain gorilla. But approximately how many of them are left in the wild? So it's hard to give like an exact number, but is it A, ten th tens of thousands, B, um, thousands, or C, hundreds? Hundreds. Yeah, <laughs> so far so good. Um, yeah, so the largest factor of their endangered, sta endangered um, status is the habitat being destroyed, which um, is a shame. And it's quite shocking to know that there's only hundreds left um, in the wild. But that's, again, something down to us, which we need to fix. Um, next question I believe you'll get. So, which of the following countries do not do you not commonly find gorillas in? So, is it A, Uganda, B, Ghana, or C, Rwanda? Not. Uh, do you, yes, do you do not, not commonly find gorillas? I'd say Ghana. Uh, yeah, that's also correct. So there are three main countries in Africa where you tend to find gorillas the most, and that's Uganda, R Rwanda, and then the other one, which I didn't mention, is where you filmed them in the Republic of Congo and the Democratic Republic of Congo. Um, so what is the term given to a family or group of gorillas, like the scientific term. So is it A, gang, B, squad, or C, troop? Troop. Yeah, that's, sorry. I'm, after hearing gang, I'd kind of prefer if it was gang. I think that, must, <laughs> that would have sounded much better. Um, yeah, the, the, boys, the boys in the hood, yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, so doing well so far, all of them correct. Next question I like, so what does the name gorilla actually mean? Is it A, long arms, B, hairy person, or C, big belly? I this is a guess, and I've never questioned that actually, so that's a brilliant question. Um, I would say long arms. No, it's actually not. I mean, all of those features I've mentioned are like features of gorillas, but it's actually um hairy person oh, or wow. hairy man. So I think... <laughs> 2,500 years ago, um, Hanno the Navigator, who's a Carthaginian explorer, travelled from, I think, what is now Tunisia to Sierra Leone. And he heard the tribespeople there referring to the big creatures that he saw um, as gorillae. <laughs> and his, um, his interpreters translated it to hairy person, which is um, what he would have like known them as well that, that's really interesting because you know when we were trying to get as far north as we needed to get we were trying to convince um the local people in Wesso to take us up there in motorized dugout huge ones and they were all but no why would you want to go there they're half men half half creatures up there they're half men half beasts obviously gorillas so hairy men, definitely. Yeah. Fantastic, brilliant questions. Uh, yeah, well, I'm relieved I got a few right. <laughs> you got four out of five, so that's I think eighty percent. Yay, good, brilliant, S solid A star, I say. Um, but anyway, 
thank you very much for speaking to me and um I appreciate your time very much. So, um, well, I'm very honoured to be your first podcast, Mika. I'm honoured that I have you as my first podcast guest. So, um, thank you once again. Thank and you. I think that's pretty much everything. So that was the first episode of Behind Every Face. I hope you enjoyed it. And of course, I was extremely grateful to have such an interesting first guest. And if you're still listening, there's just a few things that I wanted to tell you before you go. Firstly, if you could subscribe to this podcast, that would be great. And also, if you're listening to this on something like Apple Podcasts, then if you could rate it, that would also be fantastic. Okay, so secondly, be sure to check out my Twitter and my Facebook, which you'll find if you type up Miguel Mellinger. Um, there aren't too many people with my name, so that should be fairly easy. And if you or anyone else you know have a story that you would like to share, then leave me a private message on either of the two. Finally, the music you will have heard um, just now and at the start of this podcast came from a man called Max Warner, or Letterman as he likes to be known. And he hasn't asked me to do this, but when I got in touch with him, he offered to make this music free and he got to work straight away. So a big thank you to him. Other than that, thank you for listening and I'll see you next time.